Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The UK's battle against coronavirus intensified this week as the spread of the new Indian strain raised the importance of vaccinating the population as quickly as possible. I pitch this personally as a straight race. On the one side, the race is transmissibility. The other competitor in the race is vaccine delivery. And the NHS is doing everything it can to turbo boost that. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times with me, Sebastian Payne. This week, we'll be discussing the new strain of coronavirus that originated in India, as mentioned by England's Deputy Chief Medical Officer Jonathan Van Tam at the top, and whether its spread will threaten Boris Johnson's plans to ease lockdown. Are the vaccines and surge testing proving effective? Explaining all is our health editor, Sarah Neville, and science editor, Clive Cookson. And later, we'll be looking at the biggest change to British railways in 25 years. Are we heading back to the days of nationalisation and the return of British Rail? Or is the shake-up less dramatic and something more nuanced? Our chief political correspondent, Jim Picard, will discuss with special guest, the author and foremost expert on UK railways, Christian Walmart. Sarah and Clive, welcome back to the pod. Thanks, Thanks, Well, this has been a very odd week because we've been surrounded by this quite negative news about the Indian variant, which we'll come on to in a moment. But it's also been easy week. And I'm very keen to know, have either of you managed to take advantage? What about you, Clive? Have you been hitting the town big time? Well, on a small scale, um, I've been hitting the neighbourhood small time. We've been out to dinner with some friends on Monday night. I belong to a book group. We had a small meeting on Wednesday, number limited. We had someone around for dinner last night. So yes, but I've not yet been out to a restaurant. Very packed social calendar there. I've actually been out to two restaurants this week, and it's a very bizarre, sometimes overwhelming experience. The sensory overload of lots of different people, um, but everything I've been to in central London has been pretty busy, in fact, um, and it takes a little bit of getting used to. But uh, Sarah, what about yourself? Have you managed to get out and about at all? I'm afraid I still haven't suspended the caution I've been observing for the last 14 months. I'm actually going to wait until. I've had my second dose of vaccine and I can have the reassurance that I'm fully protected or almost fully protected uh, before I uh, start going back to normal pre-pandemic socialising. That's a very wise thing. I think lots of people will be certainly doing that. I think it's just uh, up to how everyone's feeling at the moment. But let's move on to the main topic of the week, which is again, coronavirus. This week was meant to be one of celebrations, the biggest easing of the UK's coronavirus restrictions in well over six months. Pubs and restaurants were all open for indoor dining again, with even hugging allowed outside. But the positive mood was dampened by several outbreaks of a new variant of COVID-19 spreading in parts of England. 
New variants of concern have always been on the government's radar as something that could challenge its lockdown easing plans. But so much is unknown about this new strain, particularly its transmissibility. Health Secretary Matt Hancock told the House of Commons this week that the government was hopeful of getting it under control. We have used the extensive biosecurity surveillance system that we've built and new techniques to identify the areas we're most concerned about where we will now surge testing and vaccinations further. This episode shows just how important it is that every single person who is vulnerable to COVID-19 gets not just one but two doses. Clive, let's begin with this new strain before we look at it in the UK. Obviously, India has had a very, very difficult time with coronavirus. And we've seen those appalling images of hospitals running out of oxygen, running out of intensive care beds. And that obviously now with retrospect is all to do with this new strain of coronavirus that although it doesn't appear to be more lethal, it is spreading much more quickly than the dominant Kent variant that's been within the UK for some time. Even the question of how much more transmissible it is, is rather uncertain, Seb. I mean, you, I, the public politicians, would love some answers to these questions. But it's quite complicated to work out, for example, whether it's much more infectious, which would destroy the remaining phases of the government's lockdown plan, or whether it's just a little bit more infectious, in which case we can probably go ahead. And There are a lot of complicating factors. For example, the fact that it's spreading rapidly in Bolton may be because a lot of people arrived from India and seeded the transmission there. I think the consensus amongst epidemiologists is 20 to 30% more transmissible than the B117 variant that's dominated transmission in this country. And that, I think, is on the verge of being something we can cope with, given what Jonathan Van Tam said, the race to vaccinate. Well, Sarah, really, the government's solution to this new variant has just all been about jabs. And that's because the initial data does suggest that the AstraZeneca jab and the Pfizer vaccine are both effective against this new strain. So they've really tried to accelerate things. Well, I think one of the really big decisions that's been taken is to reduce the interval between first and second doses. This is a slightly curious decision in some ways because the government spent an awful lot of time explaining to us all that they had decided on a 12-week interval for both the Pfizer and the AstraZeneca jab and insisted that there would be no diminution of effectiveness by doing that. And in fact, in the case of the AstraZeneca jab, there is lots of evidence from the studies that it is more effective at 12 weeks. But suddenly, we're all being told, no, come back for your your second dose in eight weeks. But the reason is that it does seem as if this second dose confers a really significantly greater protection against the Indian variant, perhaps against all variants. So the decision has been taken to rush forward a lot of people to get Everybody over 50, of course, the most vulnerable group in terms of suffering a bad outcome from COVID, to have their jabs earlier. The other big focus is on the unvaccinated because a rather worryingly significant percentage of those hospitalised with the Indian variant are people who were eligible for a vaccine but have chosen not to take it up. 
So, you know, perhaps one of the very small silver linings of what's been going on with the Indian variant is that in the hotspots, local health officials have been sending vans out into communities, mm. making it as easy as they possibly could for people to get the vaccine. And, you know, certainly anecdotally, a lot of people who were initially very hesitant to do so have now been persuaded, you know, probably by family and friends and and sort of community pressure to get jabbed. So, yeah, that's at least a, a promising sign. It is, Clive. And of course, the other thing the government's been doing as well is surge testing. And this one baffled me slightly because we did surge testing with the other variants of concern, the one from South Africa and the Brazilian variant, for example. And surge testing, which is by offering everybody biweekly tests, going from door to door, offering tests for coronavirus to identify where the outbreaks are and to get people to isolate But what I've read a lot this week is that the Indian variant is likely to become the dominant variant, which means that actually, no matter how much surge testing you can do, you're not going to isolate it. Is that correct? Again, that's not quite clear. If it is indeed 20 to 30 percent more transmissible than the B117 Kent variant, then it is likely to become the dominant variant. And then, as you say, if it's nationwide as the main strain, then there's not much point. But I think there is point at this transitional stage. If it's concentrated in a relatively small number of places where you can do the surge testing, not everyone's going to comply. But even a small to moderate proportion of people self-isolating, not going out and spreading it, will make a difference as a transitional thing. Yes, I do think that by midsummer it will be the main variant, though, God forbid, I suppose there's always a chance of another variant that we haven't even thought of or given a name or number to emerging. We can't be complacent. No, of course. Well, we'll try we'll try to stick with the the one vote we've got at the moment. Now, Sarah, of course, all this is playing into the lockdown easing debate because before this variant of concern emerged, there was pretty a lot of optimism in Whitehall and in government about what was going to happen, that we've had this big easing on May the 17th. And I was told that Boris Johnson was going to signal that the June the 21st one would actually go ahead. They've now pulled back from that because there's so much we don't know about this new variant. But it feels as if at the beginning of the week, it was very pessimistic and everyone was briefing from government June the 21st. It's not happening. Whereas now it's starting to look a little bit better as we get more data on the effectiveness of the vaccines and the sense that maybe the new Indian variant is not spreading out of control as much as possible. What's your sense of what's going to happen for that final stage of easing? Well, I think that... What does now seem to have rather faded as a a likelihood is that all social distancing measures will be formally abandoned on June the 21st. It looks as if mask wearing will have to continue, that the one metre rule will have to continue. But I think the really crucial thing that, you know, as Clive rightly said, the next week is likely to be crucial and particularly perhaps the week after that in determining whether this rise in infections with the Indian variant is leading on to a significant rise in hospitalizations because at the moment, thankfully, it isn't. We're seeing sort of rises, I think, in one of the hospitals in Bolton from 18 cases to 25 cases. You know, this is not a a rampant rise by any means. So it does look as if that vaccine wall is holding that what we always hoped the vaccines would achieve, which is breaking the link between becoming infected with coronavirus 
and falling so seriously ill that you have to be hospitalised, that possibly that link has been broken. So the sort of paramount issue the government has emphasised throughout the pandemic, will the NHS be overwhelmed? It looks as if there's a very good chance the answer to that will be no. If that does hold good, then I would see no reason why those June the 21st relaxations can't proceed. But as I said, probably still keeping the basic protection of mask wearing in shops and enclosed spaces. Well, Clive, I guess that is the challenge for the Johnson government, isn't it? That we know the Prime Minister was intending to get rid of those social distancing rules, not least to help pubs and smaller businesses that can't social distance and don't have the space to do that. But because of this new variant, it looks as if that will go on a little bit longer. And I guess the politics that are pretty difficult because obviously... Prime Minister is known for his boosterism. There's always this sense in government you've got the kind of libertarian, upbeat attitude of Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak and some people, and that's always been tempered by the scientific advice. And I guess we should look forward to one very important thing which we'll be discussing on the pod next week, which is Dominic Cummings, who is going to be making a select committee appearance on Wednesday, where he's expected to reveal a lot of details about the first stage of the planning. And you'd have to think, given that's going to be a very bruising encounter for the government, that Johnson is going to act quite cautiously on this, even if that has bad economic consequences. Because he believes in the importance of individual responsibility, if they do remove all legal requirements on June the 21st, there will probably be a big emphasis on the need for each of us as individuals to be sensible. And I think just from friends and family and talking to people, even if that doesn't happen, even if we were, and I don't think we will be completely free to do anything, a huge number of people, including me, Sarah, and you, are not going to behave as we did two years ago. We are going to be more cautious. And then finally, Sarah, a lot of this is very small numbers. And I think it's important to put that in the context, this whole thing that the UK still has some of the lowest COVID rates in the whole of Europe there. Gemini, would you say, is there concern in the Department for Health about this? Because it feels this week as if the mood has oscillated between total fear and actually now being a bit more relaxed. I agree. I think as this week ends, there is increasing optimism that these vaccines do work, particularly that the AstraZeneca vaccine works against the Indian variant. And overall, case rates one or two days this week actually have continued to fall. I mean, at the worst, they're sort of flatlining, I would say. So what we're not seeing at all so far is the nightmare scenario of huge rises in infections all over the country. And I was thinking, earlier today, you know, one thing that government really does deserve credit for is how it managed to suppress levels of the South African variant. Now, that was in many ways a much more concerning variant than the Indian because there was substantial evidence that vaccines were really significantly less effective against that variant. And yet, Cases, you know, have have remained low in large part because of this policy of using our genuinely world-beating sequencing capability in the UK to spot emerging outbreaks and to keep a lid on them. So I think the government clearly deserves credit for that. And yes, I think the mood is much lighter in the Department of Health as we end this week than it was at the start. Sarah and Clive, thank you very much. 
Britain's railways are about to undergo a massive change of direction. The complex franchising model introduced by the Conservatives in the early 1990s is undergoing a significant shakeup after years of confusion over ticketing, collapsed franchising endeavours, and a general sense that the railways weren't working. With a big new central body running the railways, some have heralded this as a return, for better or for worse, to the days of British Rail, even if the new name is slightly different. Brand Chaps, the Transport Secretary, told Sky News this week that his inspiration for taking back control of the railways was in fact Thomas the Tank Engine. It's three years to the week actually since that disastrous timetable change in May 18 where the entire system melted down. And when people said, well, well who's got control of this? The answer was no one. There was no guiding mind. There was no as the media used to like to say, fat controller, looking after the railway. And today's reforms, what I'm announcing, takes care of all of that. Jim Picard, welcome back to the podcast. You've been looking and reporting on this review into the railways led by Keith Williams for some time. What has driven this desire for a shake-up and what do you make of the conclusions? The main point to make is that this has not been driven by what's happened in the last year. The Williams review was commissioned, I think, originally by Joe Johnson when he was the Royal Minister, the Prime Minister's brother. And the whole idea was to look at franchising and basically see if it was fit for purpose. This came in the wake of the collapse of various franchises, including the East Coast main line. And it came after sort of realisation that while there was meant to be all this competition in the railway industry through the franchise system, loads of contracts were just going out without any competition at all. The number of companies that were competing for them was dwindling as various operators pulled out of the sector. And I think when it was originally commissioned, they didn't think that he would come out with a, a root and branch ending of franchising altogether. I think he ended up going further than the government anticipated when they were first launched this. But we now have this plan set out in a 110-page white paper. I started reading at 7am yesterday because I was so excited by this. And the the premise, as you mentioned a second ago, was to have a single organising body, Great British Railways, and the train companies, the TOCs as they're called, will still be running the railways. But instead of having the franchise model, which has an awful lot of kind of risk built into it in terms of profits they can make and losses they can make. It's going to be more like the system that they use on the London Underground, where you're just given a management contract to run everything. And as long as you hit your punctuality and your cleanliness targets, you get paid. Well, Christine Walmart, it's a delight to have you back on the podcast again. If Jim was excited, then I imagine your excitement was even greater than that. Before we look forward to the new plans, though, what's your retrospective view on the franchising era? Because there's kind of two stories here. We've heard about all the problems with all those franchises collapsing. But of course, the flip side argument is that actually passenger numbers have soared during the era from 1994 when you had these franchises running the British Railways. Let's lay to rest, first of all, that point. I mean, the reason why uh, the use of railways has gone up so massively is very little to do with the efforts of the franchising companies, but much more to do with a booming economy, the fact that people have moved to places that are accessible to the railway. Very important that lots of railway land has been sold off and therefore lots of easily transit accessible places have been built and so on. And none of it really is down to the efforts of the franchising company. Now, what is funny about this, and I I really have to have a giggle. I mean, I spent kind of 20 years writing in my various columns, you know, what is franchising for? And saying, you know, what a terrible mess it was, that it was expensive, that 
passengers found it difficult to find out who was accountable, that there was huge amounts of money wasted on delay attribution, 400 people were employed just finding out who was to blame for delays and so on. And lo and behold, all of it is reproduced in the white paper as a criticism of what was done by the government in the mid-1990s. But hold on a sec, wasn't it the Tories in the mid-1990s as much as the Tories now? So it's an extraordinary document in that it's such a massive criticism of their own policies. And I think just on that, Jim, there is this ideological thing I want to touch on very interestingly that obviously Margaret Thatcher very famously said that privatising the railways would have been a step too far. And it was her successor, John Major, who did abolish British Rail and create the franchising system. But when you look at what the Johnson government is doing here, it's definitely not a very free market conservative approach. And there's been many commentators on the political right who've criticised this review this week, saying that it's too much state control and there's no evidence this will be better for passenger outcomes. But if you look at this and you also look at what the Johnson government is doing with buses, there's definitely a shift going on here, which I think is just fascinating to watch. And it's also a bit of a problem for the Labour Party. Yeah, exactly. So I, I went back yesterday through the original announcement by John McGregor, who was the Transport Secretary nearly 30 years ago. And he was kind of quite a boring commons performer, although he was an amateur magician, you'd be interested to know. And he sort of set out this this vision, incredibly positive vision about how they were going to harness management skills, financial disciplines, entrepreneurial spirit. And he was citing all these other privatizations and how they'd managed to bring down costs. And they'd also managed to sort of cut the price for consumers. So presumably he would be horrified to look at what's happened and the fact that the cost of a railway ticket has gone up something like 40 or 50% in real terms since then. You know, Travelling by train has not become cheaper as a result of all this private sector intervention, whatever good or bad things they might have done elsewhere. So your political point is a fascinating one, which is, yes, it's the Conservative Party doing this. And when you listen to Grant Shapps, in the House of Commons yesterday morning during the debate, he repeated on three or four times that he's not ideological, he just wants whatever system works best. And that shape-shifting is politically probably quite clever. It's one of those things where Jeremy Corbyn would be trying to nationalise the railway, people would be sceptical because of the kind of political place he's coming from. I think it's one of those weird things where when the Conservatives do things that don't look very competitive, People sort of presume they must know what they're doing in the same way that when Labour was doing things which weren't very Labour in terms of the NHS, when New Labour was part privatising the health service, people mm. sort of presume they must, they can be trusted with the health service. I think that's the philosophy of it. But the problem is that it is ideological, but it's disguised because in a sensible world, I mean, I'm writing a book about British Rail at the moment. And there's no doubt that in the last 10 or 12 years of British Rail's life. It had reached a very good system. It had these sectors, remember Network Southeast, which actually broke even, Intercity, which was profitable. And it had enough commercial freedom, not enough, but it had some commercial freedom to make decisions on its own. Here, we're going to be back to a treasury that will, from reading the white paper, will have very strong control. And there is this insistence that, oh, you still have to privatise the operations because... Well, they're not quite sure why, because, but because they don't really want to be seen as nationalising the whole shebang, when actually you might as well just adopt a British rail model. 
Sure, but it's unideological in the sense that it's exactly the halfway point between total nationalisation and total privatisation, right? Yes, I know, indeed. It, it is a kind of halfway point, and they can point to left-wing people that this is sort of renationalisation, and they can point to right-wing people that it's still a very much private sector-led. But the truth is, that's an awful mishmash, you know, and they should really just have gone the whole hog and decided that this whole system didn't work, which the first 20 pages of the uh, white paper say it didn't, and actually just go back to what was a pretty effective uh, system as long as Great British Railways is able to be a hands-off organisation. In other words, not under day-to-day control of the Department for Transport and Treasure, which I'm worried it will be in this guise. But is this new system going to be effective? And is it going to address the concerns that have had over British Railways? Jim first on this. There's been a lot of questions this week about ticket prices in particular, and um, because obviously the railways have suffered like everything else from coronavirus, with passenger numbers have dropped significantly. And then there is a question about, you know, what is this going to lead to? My view on this is that you know, Grant Shapps is it's one of those bouncy political characters who makes everything sound very glossy and he talks about a golden era of the railways just around the corner. I think when you look at the vision that he is promising, it involves simultaneously the government making £1.5 billion a year savings on this within five years, also services being maintained, also new investment going to schemes such as high-speed rail, the electrification of some services, the reversal of some of the beaching cuts. And at the same time, they're not saying the prices won't go up. But I mean, certainly when you listen to Shaps in the Commons yesterday, he was trying to reassure other MPs that there was no immediate rise in fares around the corner. So when you take all of these glossy promises and then you look at the scenario we find ourselves in, which is post-pandemic, lots of people who are planning to work from home in the future, at least part-time. And where's this demand going to come from? Will it take five years or 10 years for demand to go back to where it was pre-pandemic? Something's got to give. I don't see the logic of how this all knits together successfully. And what's your view on it, Christian, when you look at this together? Do you think it's going to make a positive improvement? I must say, I I agree with much of what Jim just said. Uh, Look, there's one or two good aspects of this, which is that, yes, it will be easier to coordinate investment plans with the timetable and there might well not be a repeat of what happened in 2018 with that timetable change chaos. It will be possible for this new organisation to plan further ahead and tailor the investment towards that and so on. But there's supposed to be more saving, uh, more spending, and, you know, it's sort of magic money tree stuff, isn't it? And the very clear thing that wasn't mentioned was any hope that fares would even stay the same, let alone go down, and nor is there a proper rationalisation of the fares system. So I somewhat suspect that let's go a year or two down the road, we have these GBR branded trains, but the fares are still going to be high. There's still going to be kind of complexities about when you travel and whether you get an advanced ticket and all that. There's going to be some very high top-end fares of just jumping on the train at eight o'clock in the morning to go from London to Manchester. It still cost you more than 200 quid. People are going to get cross about this. Now, who are they then going to blame? And that's really the thing that I think the, the government has tried to avoid in the past by passing things on to the private sector. But now with all the trains branded as GBR 
and very clearly government ministers uh, responsible for it, they're going to get the blame. So I think it's a typical thing of this government to, to buy off an issue with a bit of bluster and a bit of Borisonian stuff like great, which is clearly something that he added in. But uh, a year or two down the line, things might go fucked. Yes. And finally, Jim, obviously, this thing is not coming in immediately. It's going to be transitioning over three years. And obviously, where the working world is, where the country is, where our transport needs are in that time could be quite different from the moment we're currently in. So it'll be interesting to see once we get from the white paper into the legislation, how this thing will adapt and change. But it doesn't feel as if it's going to get any more state control than it is at the moment. No, and we've, we've not talked about flexi tickets, which was part of the big glossy offering this week, was this idea that you'd be able to get travel cards that would enable you to still get cheap travel despite not going in every day. And actually, when you looked at the examples they gave of these flexi tickets, um, to be clear, they're not setting out the full cost or relative cost of any of this for another month. But they gave a few examples. So they said, for example, if you're traveling from Woking to London, you would save 250 quid I think it was over the course of a year compared to just turning up and buying a ticket so that works out as about £2.50 per journey cheaper but what they didn't do is compare it per journey to what it would cost compared to having a monthly or an annual travel card and the answer is an awful lot more expensive and therefore not really that attractive and then just the other thing I don't think we can finish this conversation without talking about peacocks when we talk about this one and a half billion that they're hoping to save over five years might raise the question, how are they going to do that? They insist that efficiencies, economies of scale, and not having these 400 people wrangling over disputes as to who's to blame for various accidents and other problems. Is it network rail or the tox? And the example they give in the white paper is an argument that actually took place over a pheasant and whether a pheasant was a large bird or a small bird, and that would determine who was responsible for this cost. I'm afraid to say the white paper got it wrong. And in reality, it was actually a peacock. But it was quite a good example of things going wrong in the old system. And let, let's hope that maybe things do improve, even though I agree with a lot of Christian's analysis of why they probably won't. Well, thank you very much, Jim. And thanks, Christian. And I can recommend his most recent book is Cathedrals of Steam, the story of London's railway terminus. Uh, it's a book that I got for Christmas. And if you love railways as much as Jim does, then you should <laughs> almost certainly take a look for some of the glory days of British railways. That's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We also do love some positive ratings and nice reviews. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Josh de la Mer. The sound engineer was Sean McGarity. Until next time, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. 
As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 